and holy and loved. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We come now to our time of prayer together. I notice that we use the traditional title here, pastoral prayer, and so I'll start by criticizing your title. It's not the pastor's prayer. It's the prayer of the church. The pastor simply acts as the voice of the congregation. But we all pray. Let us pray. Almighty and merciful God, you who made the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, we thank you for your marvelous gifts for us. But we thank you most of all for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, our King, and our Lord. We thank you for that grace of the Holy Spirit by which we are enabled to receive and rest upon your Son as our only and all-sufficient Savior. O gracious Father, by your Spirit, strengthen our faith and that of the faith of our children baptized in your name, that we may this day and every day put our hope and trust only in your Son, who lived for us and died for us, who rose for us and who reigns for us. Gracious Father, we remember your saints throughout the whole world and ask that you would bless your people in every place. We think especially of our brothers and sisters in places of hardship and suffering and persecution. O Lord, protect and deliver the house churches of China from the oppression of that evil government. Be with your saints scattered throughout the Islamic world who face the onslaught both of unjust governments and of mobs. Protect them, deliver them, and make their witness effective for the growth of your kingdom. Be with the Christians in North Africa who often face the threat of violence and even murder from terrorist groups. Strengthen them, support them. Father, we pray for your church here in America, that you would revive and renew your people, that we would awaken from our spiritual slumbers, that our pulpits would be full of gospel preaching, the proclamation of Jesus as the only Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask, O Lord, that you would send out your spirit upon our nation and turn the hearts of many from their wickedness and unbelief to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance towards you. O gracious Father, we find that there are many in public life who call evil good and good evil. O Lord, catch them in their folly. Let them fall into their own traps But, O Lord, have mercy on their souls. Deliver them out of their evil thoughts and evil ways. Deliver them from the power of the devil and bring them into the kingdom of the Son of your love. O gracious Father, we come before you and we pray for the many in this congregation, friends and relatives who have various physical needs, who struggle with cancer and other ailments, with injuries. We ask for your hand of healing and sustaining. O Father, when you bring hard times into our lives, Teach us, Father, to rest in you, to trust in you, to believe that you work even these hurtful things to our minds for our good, and that even in the pain and the suffering, in the grief and in the turmoil of life, there you test and prove our faith. Teach us, Father, to count the sufferings of this life, not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. O Heavenly Father, we ask that as we come before you, that your name would be honored throughout the whole world, that in every place people would praise you, the creator and savior of mankind. We pray 
that your kingdom would advance throughout the whole world until the earth is full of the knowledge of you as the waters cover the sea. We ask, O Lord, that we here would do your will on earth, even as the angels in heaven do your will there. Grant, O Heavenly Father, we may have the needs for our sustenance of life. Forgive us the multitude of our sins and teach us to forgive others as you forgive us. And, O Father, deliver us from that evil one who would lead us astray and from that evil that resides in us that entices us to go astray. But deliver us from that. And we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory forever. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I'm pleased to be with you this morning and share with you from the word of God. As I conduct the rest of your service, you'll bear with my, what are we doing next? Awkwardnesses and, oh, we did it in the wrong order. That invariably happens. I'd like to read to you from the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And I understand that the ESV is the standard centered Bible that you have here. So I'll read from that particular translation. The word of our God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, bless this reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, by your Holy Spirit, so lead our thoughts that we may understand and grasp your truth. So work in our hearts that we may love that truth. And so renew our wills that we may endeavor to do that truth. For we ask this through Jesus, our Savior. Amen come to you this morning to preach on this passage. In particular, I want to focus on verse 12. There is a lot of material in this section of Ephesians, and it's worthy of a number of sermons. And I decided that rather than skip over many of the details, to give you a general overview, I would instead focus in on verse 12. Verse 12 is an interesting verse. It has a number of translation issues that I want to address to you. Paul begins by verse 12 by saying, to follow the word order of the Greek, and not to us the struggle against blood and flesh. 
And you all say, wait a minute, why did you reverse that? Isn't it flesh and blood? And interestingly, from at least the time of Wycliffe in the 13th century, our English translations have consistently flip-flopped the order of the Greek words to our standard expression, flesh and blood. But Paul actually writes blood and flesh. Is that significant? Well, in one sense, it's not really significant. It's the same two words, and the order isn't all that significant. But it's significant in another sense, that often translations of specific texts in the Bible become so acculturated, so much a part of our culture, so much a part of our language experience as English speakers, as Americans, that we think of that phrase almost as if it's not got its origin in the Bible. Flesh and blood. And we use the phrase flesh and blood in a variety of ways within our culture, within our language patterns as English speakers. And then we read those usages of that phrase back into the biblical text, which is always a mistake. Because the ancient text means what it means, whatever we made out of it centuries later. And so I mention this to you Because Paul says, our struggle, our battle, is not against blood and flesh. So don't think of the way we use the word flesh and blood. Think of what Paul must have meant when he said blood and flesh. If you battle against blood and flesh, what do you need to defeat your enemy? You need a sword that draws blood and that slices flesh. And you need a steel helmet that protects you from the blows of the enemy's sword or other weapon. And a breastplate that deflects the arrows of of your enemy. Paul says, our struggle is not a physical struggle in which it matters that we have swords with sharp edges and multi-layered bits of leather that form a breastplate to protect us from the assault of the enemy. That's not the struggle that we are in. I can relate to that. In, uh, in, in many of my years of life, I have been an avid shooter and a participant in competitive sports, shooting sports. And so I understand how firearms work. In fact, I was a club range officer, they understand what it means to use a firearm to defend against a physical assault. And the sword was the same thing in the ancient setting. But you see, my competency with firearms has no consequence, no effect, and no place in the battle that Paul is here talking about. We don't war against, we don't fight against an enemy that can be defeated with the physical means of ordinary warfare. Swords in the ancient world, firearms in the modern world. No, but Paul says, but we fight against rulers and against authorities. And the ESV renders those two terms as rulers and authorities. 
Those are the, I'm looking at the Greek text. Those are the same things that Paul uses to describe the Roman authorities in Romans 13, where he calls the Roman government authorities and rulers, RK and exousia in the Greek. And that is striking. Paul is saying, look, you are in a struggle against authorities and rulers. But it's not a struggle against blood and flesh. It's not a struggle that you can win by entering into mortal combat and defeating your enemy with ancient swords or modern weaponry. It's not that kind of a battle. But then some people reading this text take that to mean that we're really battling against heavenly spiritual powers, angelic authorities, angelic rulers. When's the last time you had an issue with an angelic ruler? I mean, you were walking down the street and, you know, all of a sudden you got attacked by an angelic ruler, right? No. But if you live in China, there are authorities and rulers that are saying to you, if you meet privately in a house to worship, we will arrest you. You see, Paul is not talking about spiritual, non-physical authorities and rulers. He's talking about rulers and authorities in the ordinary sense he uses that word. At different times and in different places, Christians have found themselves in a conflict against human authorities, human rulers. But the conflict, the battle, the struggle was not one that could be, that could be, you could not defeat the enemy by taking up a sword or a musket or a modern rifle. Because it was a war of ideas and beliefs and convictions, of false philosophies and false religious ideas. That's the war we battle against. Real human authorities, like the Marxist Chinese government, that wars against the gospel and seeks to snuff it out. But then we have this third term, as the NIESV translated, cosmic powers. And I'm trying not to chuckle. You can't get this, but the Greek word that's translated isn't translated. It's, it's the word cosmos. And the ESV just couldn't figure out what to do with the thing, so they just represented the sound of the word in English, cosmic. But think about it. When you hear the word cosmic in English, what do you think about? Star Wars? Star Trek? Right? So what are cosmic powers? You haven't a clue what that means. But the Greek word that's used here is a very fascinating term. It's kosmokratoros. It's the word cosmos, which is ordinarily translated by the English word world, 
and the word krateo, the verb, and the adjective derived from it that means strong or powerful. The word was used in ancient pagan Greek to describe the Greek gods, Zeus and etc. It was a word used to describe the Egyptian Pharaoh. How is Paul using this word? We have to think about context. Paul and the Christians in Ephesus are living in a pagan governed, pagan intellectual world. And in that world, there are rulers and authorities, people in charge, governmental officials, folks with, the, with, with power over society who are pressing their godless and wicked agenda, requiring the worship of the saints, or the worship of, of, of Greek gods, and again, the worship of Caesar. Think about that. If you lived in Ephesus, there was a temple in Ephesus to the Greek god Diana. And there was a statue of Caesar that you were to bow down and pay homage to. And as Paul writes this, Nero is on the throne. And Nero, the sixth Roman emperor, the sixth head of the seven heads in the book of Revelation of the beast, Nero is traveling around the world playing, playing, play acting, being an actor. Everywhere he goes, he's greeted with divine honors. And at one point, he meets the king of Armenia. By the way, it's not Armenia, it's Armenia, just north of the Caucasus. And the king of Armenia greets Nero. And he says, my Lord and my God, my fate. There was the spiritual battle that the Ephesians were to take up the armor of God and to stand against. That there is only one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. Paul is a interesting in how he writes. When he writes about the Roman authorities in chapter 13 of Romans, and he is discussing the need to be obedient to lawful commands, to not be a murderer or a thief or what have you. At the same time, he tells the Christians, don't engage in evil activities. Just because the Roman emperor is full of wicked unbelief. You, can't, you cannot commit murder. You cannot steal. Because he, God is using him to punish those who do that. Don't be part of that. Don't engage in the rebellion that will happen in, Jeru in Jerusalem in just a few years that will lead to its utter destruction. But then he calls that Roman Caesar who the king of Armenia addresses as 
my Lord and my God and my fate. And he calls him deacon. Well, see, the word deacon isn't really an English word. It's a Greek word. It means paid servant. Paul demotes Caesar from God to paid servant. Paul will have nothing to do with the unbelief that characterizes the religious political philosophy of his day. He tells the Ephesians, that's what you're warring against, but it's not a battle you win against blood and flesh with swords and spears. It's a battle you win with the gospel, with the word of God, with the spirit of truth. And then we have this third phrase, which the ESV renders as cosmic powers. Interestingly, the New International Version simply translated as powers of this dark world. And the translation by Wycliffe in the 13th century as against governors of these darknesses. In every society, there are not only people who are officially set apart and established as rulers, the, the people who are up front, the RK in Greek, and authorities, exousia in Greek, but there are also people who are powerful people in the world, powerful people in human society. And Paul often uses the word world the way we use the word society in English today. In the organized human world, in human society, there are those who have the power to influence people in ways of wickedness and perversity and corruption. And we are at war against them. In our culture, those world strong men, which would be a wooden translation of the Greek text, those societal influencers, those people with power in society, aren't just official governments and governmental workers. Sometimes they're in the media, in the institutions of education. Sometimes they're pundits and politicians who are urging that which is against the reign and rule of King Jesus. And behind these expressions here for, in society around us of rulers and authorities and world strongmen, societal influencers who would lead people astray, who would go down the path of destruction and perdition, who are spokesmen for Satan, who are like the Roman emperor would become very shortly in human history a beast filled with the influence of the dragon, Satan. 
as we see in the book of Revelation. And behind that are the spiritual things in the heavenlies. Not places is not there in the Greek. It's not heavenly places. It's in the heavenlies, which is Paul's expression for the immaterial but real world around us. We would probably call it the spiritual world in our English terminology. Paul calls it the heavenlies. Paul says that you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Your blessings aren't locked up in heaven. They are, you're experiencing them now. The forgiveness of sins. The adoption as sons. The election of God. All of that you're now experiencing. But it's in the realm of the immaterial. That which you can access by faith. But that which you cannot see or touch with the finger, or hurt with a sword. And these spiritual things of evil in the heavenlies lie behind the evil in human society, in human governments, in human media and education and elsewhere. And we are fighting against that evil. It's the real battle. It's here all around us. It's here when you turn on the TV and listen to what's said there. You can hear it in the classrooms at times. Hear it in the mouths of public officials. In the statements of pundits. That which opposes the reign and rule of King Jesus. That we war against. But we do it with the armor of God. Not with physical swords or modern rifles. And Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, or better translated, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against it in the evil day. And having done all to stand. Stand. With exceptions, for the most part, ancient warfare was conducted in a rather static way. Our examples of maneuver warfare in the ancient world, Hannibal was very good at it. But on the whole, when two armies fought, they lined up across the field of battle. And they drew close together and began to hack at each other with sword and spear, with arrows and other objects thrown from behind them onto each opposing side. And the army that stood won. Because at some point, when fear took over, when the assaults of the enemy caused the heart to faint, the other enemy would turn their backs and run. And now they were exposed, and they would lose. Paul says, you are called to stand. Stand does not mean to simply survive. It's not a defensive terminology. 
It is the way in which in the ancient world you win the battle. You need to stand in the whole armor of God, proclaiming and believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God the Son took human flesh for us, that he taught us, that he showed his own divinity by his great miracles, that he offered himself a sacrifice for our sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he sits and reigns at God's right hand, and that he will reign to defeat all his and our enemies. We need to be aware of the schemes of the devil, as the ESV puts it, of the methods of the, of the devil to translate the text kind of woodenly from the Greek. What is the great danger that you Christians face today in our world where there are governments or parts of governments or people in governmental positions of power who would use their power to annul the truth of God, who would deny and destroy the truth that God made us according to his image, male and female, that God granted us that one man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his woman, literal translation of the Hebrew, that God's law is law for all men at all times and all places. Against those we find ourselves battling. And we are confronted with people in positions of, a, of governmental authority who oppose the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those in positions of societal influence, world strongmen, so to speak, who would cause us to compromise, to turn away from the truth to make peace with evil. No, hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is the spiritual battle that we are in. It's right here. It's in our society. It's in every society. It's different from place to place. But it's there. And you are called to stand before human authorities, people of influence and power, and say to them, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. One final comment. When I preach on these themes, someone is bound to ask me, but aren't we supposed to keep religion and politics separate. And there's a sense in which that's true. There are hundreds of political issues out there that have no religious significance to them. How many bridges do we build? What sort of airplanes does our Air Force need? How big should the Navy aircraft carriers be? All those kinds of questions. And many more. But time and again, people in governmental and positions of influence in society have an agenda against Christ and against his kingdom. And they would say to us, you can have your Christianity as a private religion. Keep to yourself. Don't speak about these things in the public square. An older phrase you haven't heard lately, but it was really big in Reagan's days. The public square. And the question is asked, does Christ 
have a place in the public square? And the answer, very broadly in our society, not just from all the same political perspective, is no, keep Jesus out of this. So I ask you the question, does Jesus have a place in the public square? And the answer is no. It's his square. He owns it. The question is, do you have a place in Jesus's square? In his public place? Let us not be afraid to proclaim that Jesus, Savior of the world, is necessarily and also at the same time King of all kings and presidents, prime ministers and premiers, ruler of all who have dominion over anything on earth, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. But that battle for the hearts and minds of people, that they would bow the knee to King Jesus, confess his commandments to be the only law that governs ourselves and serve him in all of life. That battle is not won with physical swords or modern battle rifles, but with the word of God, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the proclamation that Jesus, crucified for our sins, is risen from the dead. Let us pray. O gracious Father, as you have called us into this battle against the evil one and those influenced by him, those earthly rulers and governors and people of influence who are imbued with ideas and beliefs that come from the spiritual things in the heavenlies. O Father, give us the courage to stand boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ, to proclaim him the only Savior of mankind. His law is the only law for all men at all times and all places. And grant, O Lord, that by your Spirit our witness may be effective to the conversion of many. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.